The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and this week I want to talk about linguistic pet peeves. Not yours, but mine. Because people often ask a linguist, we linguists are seen as so permissive about what are widely seen as language errors. We're permissive, we're benevolent. And we're often asked, well, what bothers you? Do you not like any of the things that you hear people saying all the time? And the answer to that question, at least from me, is of course there are things that I don't like hearing in terms of people's grammatical constructions, etc. But we consider it our jobs to work against our feelings like that and think of them as understandable but unfortunate biases because, as I've often tried to get across on this show, scientifically there is no case for the idea that someone who's speaking fluently and with nuance is somehow doing something wrong. Our sense of what's wrong, unless we're talking about an outright grammatical error that nobody else makes, is conditioned by sociological and socio-historical randomnesses. So, what about my pet peeves? What do I not like? I don't like spending long times cooped up in a closet as I am now, but other than that, what are some things that people say that I can't stand? Well, let me share my main one with you. And it's something that I don't get the feeling most people even notice, but this drives me crazy. It's like an eyelash in your eye, and people do it a lot, and so it means that I have something to be handily annoyed about all the time. Here is a clip from the slightly undersung live-action Disney movie from the 60s, The Happiest Millionaire. Here is Fred McMurray talking, and just listen to him. You're not going to hear anything at first, probably, but just listen to what he says. I was a sickly child, Mr. Duke. Asthma. And then when I was 10, I came down with typhoid fever. Well, that's it, they said. He'll never make it. But I did make it. And somehow the fever killed the asthma. It was like a miracle. And you know what I learned at that early age, Mr. Duke? That life is a precious and wonderful thing. But you just can't sit there and let it lap around you. You have to dive into it. You have to taste it. You have to feel it. You have to use it. And the more you use, the more you have. That's the wonder of it. Now, probably you don't know what bothered me. Well, how about this? Here is an episode of Lucille Ball's second sitcom. Yes, I couldn't resist. This is The Lucy Show. This would be 1967. Here is something that Lucy says. So you went shopping and you picked up a few things. Well, more than a few. More than a few. There were, let's see now, three steam irons, a little bottle of cologne, a pair of curtains, two pair of curtains, and... uh, Oh, I found a new eyelash curler and uh, a floor lamp. Floor lamp? Where was that? It wasn't in the bag. Well, of course not. You just can't walk out carrying a floor lamp. (laughs) It's being delivered. Do you hear what it is that bothers me? It's just can't. I don't like that. It should be you can't just. What do I mean? Okay, so, for example, he went in, right? He simply went in. Okay. He can simply go in. Right? Not, he simply can go in. (laughs) He can simply go in. We're talking about him going simply, and then we might want to modify it by talking about kenness. So, 
he can simply go in. Or make it negative. He can't simply go in. Okay, now, how about with just? He just went in. All he did was go in. He just went in. Oh, don't worry. He can just go in. Or, he can't just go in. But no, the way most people put it is, he just can't go in. No, no, no. He can't just go in is the way I feel like it should be. You just can't blah, 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 blah is what people say when they mean. You can't just come in and it's just this little blip. I don't know what its history is, but for some reason, when it comes to the auxiliary can and just, they flipped for some reason. It's like some sort of mitochondrial DNA error that's crept in with the order of the nucleotides or something like that. And there it is. Now, everybody knows what it means. People know when you say, you just can't do that. You don't mean you simply cannot do that thing. It's just unthinkable that you would do that. What you mean is you can't simply, i.e. without thinking, casually go in. We all know what it means. Nevertheless, it's always struck me as a contravention of order. But, you know, I've got to stop being bothered by that because all languages have dings. It's like... Any car you have, unless you basically never drive it, is going to have dings. It has to be part of why you love it. All languages have little dings. Mandarin, because I've been thinking about that a lot lately. The way that you say not, if you're in, say, the present or the future, is bu. The way you say not, if you're in the past, is mei. Okay, that's fine. Now, with to be and to have, however... You have to use bu no matter what you're talking about. And so it has to be bu shi. Okay. But there's no such thing as mei shi. That doesn't mean was. You just can't do that. With shi, you have to use bu. And then with the verb have, yo, you have to use the past one. You have to say mei yo. There's no such thing as bu yo. You just don't use bu with yo, whether you're talking about the past, present, or future. So with shi, it's always that present one with yo. It's always that past one, and you just kind of have to know. I don't think that has kept anybody who speaks Mandarin from doing whatever they needed to do, including communicating. And who am I to say that there's something wrong with it? But I don't think that many Mandarin speakers are thinking about it either. It's just kind of, that's the way it is. Or there are other things that make just as little sense as the just can't thing that we don't think about at all. And so, for example, I am a man. Okay. I am a man, aren't I? No, no, no. I am a man, aren't I? But I would never say, I are a man. That makes no damn sense at all, and yet we handle that all the time, and we don't think anything of it. Now, as a matter of fact, as you might suppose, there are kinds of English where you do say amant. I mean, why not? That's what makes sense. You would assume that that's how things started, and frankly, they did. So today, even today, in Ireland and Scotland, you can say amant. Now, of course, wouldn't you know, the thing that actually makes sense, that makes the language logical, is considered quaint. And so quaint that here in America, you can't imagine amant at all. It seems like, you know, some sort of joke. I hate to admit, I probably shouldn't admit this, that 20 years ago, I would bring this up occasionally and just say amant is impossible. And I actually didn't know back then that across the pond, people actually say it. And I would just say, notice how it sounds like a Martian. It's not a Martian, it's a Scot. So, for example, here is Ivor Cutler kind of a Tom Lehrer-esque singer over in Scotland. At least that seems to be a comparison that would come to my mind. Here he is singing something, and notice this is just straight. 
He's not trying to sound buffoonish. This is part of that variety of how we speak this language called English. Gee, I'm interlucky. I ain't got a nose like yours, buddy. Gee, I'm interlucky, lucky buddy. When I go walking the roads of the world, tenderly looking for you, what do I find but you clutching your nose, mending your nostrils with glue? Gee, I'm entirely lucky, ain't got teeth like yours, buddy. Gee, I'm entirely lucky, lucky buddy. Isn't it the funny thing? The logical thing became the illogical thing. So think about amant, and think about saying it the way people over there say it, rather than here. Well, if you say amant enough, pretty soon you're saying ant, ant. That's what it became, right? Well, if you say ant and you are on those islands instead of over here, notice how you might start to think that ant is the way you say something that's written aren't. It sounds like aren't, and even if you're not thinking about writing, you're thinking, well, ant, isn't that like they are, we are, aren't, and so pretty soon... You know, it probably started with young people who were too young to know any better. This aunt became aren't I. And so I am a man. Aren't I. And pretty soon it was written aren't I. That's how that started. Funny thing. Now then also this same aunt is where ain't comes from. And so it ends up that this aunt creates two mistakes, so to speak. The aren't I is a mistake. Then many people think of ain't as very slangy, very vulgar, very incorrect. All it is is a normal development from amant, aunt, and then ain't. Because, of course, ain't couldn't come from a not. There's no to be form a, like I, a, or something like that. It came from this. So it's a matter of ordinary language change. Really, if there were no sociological values put on these things, we just think of it as dazzling developments like the Cambrian explosion. It's just like a kaleidoscope where amant is ant is aren't is ain't. It's rather fabulous. It's like it's like a kaleidoscope, like in the opening credits of the Lucy show by 1967. And even the music under those credits gets it across. Mike, can you play it for a second? <laughs> The Lucy Show, starring Lucille Ball, co-starring Gail Gordon, hear that musical kaleidoscope, that's how ain't and aren't I were created. By the way, I've always wondered, and I don't know the answer to this question, why in the world was that man's name Gale? That was no more normal then than it is now. Why would he give himself a name that might as well have been Patricia or Harriet? His name was Charles. Gale. How about another one? Someone I knew, and they were not alone, but someone I knew, this is when I first noticed it, used to say shrimps instead of shrimp. You want some shrimps? I used to not like that. Like, it's shrimp. You want some shrimp? Why can't you master the nuances? Why do you keep saying shrimps? And you know, I really needed to get over that. I honestly, deep, deep down, I would feel the same way today. No, not shrimps. You must say shrimp. But really, that's not a nuance in the language. It's a blight. It really is a blight. I mean, think, for example, that we already have 
senselessly irregular plurals. And so man, men, goose, geese, but then not moose, niece, louse, lice, but then not house, heist, just louse, lice, child, children, person, peupul. What in the world are those? But it's actually worse because we have other irregular plurals, as in the nouns that capriciously just don't take any plural marking. And shrimp is one of those things. They're like deer. Three deers. No, you're not supposed to say that. That makes you cute. It's three deer. Well, why? Now, you like to think that things are in a language because it makes the language clearer. Okay. But it certainly doesn't aid clarity for us not to say shrimps when there's more than one of them. There's one shrimp. Now, there are four of the little fuckers. And you're going to say there are four shrimps. What's wrong with that? Because you'd say four dogs. But no for shrimp, and then you just kind of leave it there, and if you stick the S on, then some little snot-nosed kid like me is thinking, why do you keep saying that? Well, clarity just isn't of issue here. And then what about consistency? We often think about consistency and these little grammatical rules where you think, well, you have to keep things consistent. And so people like the Billy and I, Billy and me rule. Well, you would never say me goes to the store, so you can't say Billy and me go to the store. Okay. If that's true, then are we saying shrimp out of some kind of consistency? And you might think, well, okay, like krill, which might as well be shrimp, and they're something that, you know, whales that are too big to be believed somehow survive on. Well, there are billions and billions of them, and you don't talk about krills, you say that they eat krill. Okay, so you think, well, maybe it's that when you deal with something that's in big, giant groups and probably isn't very intelligent and therefore not very individual, well, then you don't use the S. And so like sheep, sheep, and I'm sure, you know, lamb are cute. I imagine some of you have an affection for sheep, but frankly, they're not the sharpest knives in the drawer. And I'm not a farmer. I'm not a shepherd, but I'll bet sheep don't really differ that much in personality. But the point is that you refer to sheep, not sheeps. Hey, look, three sheeps. That's not right. For some reason, you're supposed to not use the plural, but it's quite inconsistent. And so, for example, deer, you know, three deer. Do deer travel in what you would call herds? Now I'm thinking of antelope, and I guess you would say, well, that's eight antelope coming, or eight antelopes, I don't know, but deer, how many of them do you see? I don't think I've ever seen more than, say, six or seven in the wild, and really, I'm pretty sure that in terms of any deer that I would have experienced in my native land, they don't travel in herds of 500. It's not like, oh my God, there are 500 deer coming right at me. They don't exist in groups that big, and yet deer. Or you're, you're thinking, well, maybe it's things in the water. You know, things in the water maybe that are kind of disgusting to look at, but good to eat. But then that doesn't work either. Oysters, you know, it might as well be mucus on a shell, but notice I didn't say oyster. It's not three oyster, or like an eel. Good God, you don't want to meet one, but it's three eels, not three eel. Pelicans, I mean, they're not underwater, but boy, they're ugly animals, and yet you don't say 18 pelican. It's 18 pelicans. And so really, it's just this irregular thing, and gets worse, like with fish. You know, once again, we've got kind of non-individuated things that often travel in huge groups underwater, and so you're supposed to say three fish. But then fishes isn't impossible. The, the festival of the seven fishes, you don't say the seven fish, or something like well, we're going to examine the evolution of various fishes. 
probably you'd say various fishes. If you're talking about the ray-toothed fish and the cartilaginous fish, etc., it wouldn't be a various fish. You could say it, but to me, as soon as you say fish, you start to get a smell and a taste. You start thinking about eating it, and you know you don't want to eat the fish that you're examining the evolution of. Usually, lampreys and stuff like that. They're fish, right? So. You have fish and fishes, and to be a native English speaker is to know exactly when you can get away with fishes. How is any of this a matter of clarity? How is any of this a matter of consistency? And so what it means is that if somebody says shrimps, they're making the language better. It should be shrimps. It isn't, and so you just kind of get used to hearing shrimp, and by the time you realize it doesn't make sense, you're too old to change your ways. But really, shrimps is better. The person who used to say this was improving the language. And you know, by the way, a little quick sidebar, while we're underwater, you know what eel was in Old English? Alfisk. Okay. Alfisk. Well, you know what another word for eel was in Old English in many documents? Alfix. So, to get away from the silly Old English voice, there was alfisk and alfix. This is that thing that I was talking about last time. So you could talk about an owl fisk, an eel fish, or an owl fix, an eel fix. And so there were many people who took that sk and made it into a kss. That is your ask and axe again. So we hear axe, that would be many people's pet peeve. People saying, I'm going to axe you. And to these people, it sounds so illiterate. It sounds almost deliberately distortive, but really it's just the same thing as eel fisk and eel fix. There were ask people, there were axe people, there were ash people. Axe happened to win out in a great many places. Take something else that doesn't make any sense. Wake up. Why up? What's upward? Why wouldn't wake do the whole thing? You know, awaken. There's no reason language doesn't make sense. Frankly, this is fake. That's not what I'm really thinking about. I'm going for a transition. This is a song called Wake Up, Brother, and Dance. Wake Up, Brother, and Dance is George and Ira Gershwin. This is from their 1937 movie, Shall We Dance, except it wasn't used. The title song, Shall We Dance, began as this Wake Up, Brother, and Dance. This is not it with the words. This is Kevin Cole, a great pianist in that style, except we're hearing it in modern sound, playing Wake Up, Brother, and Dance. Of course, the sustained pedal on my piano broke as soon as the shelter-in-place order came. So I can't play anything that requires that you be able to hold your notes out, but that means that I can only play things like Wake Up Brother and Dance, which is why I decided to share this with you. Isn't this catchy?
before. Here's another one that bothers me, but shouldn't. And this is one where it bothers me to the point that I know I will never not be thrown a little bit by it. And it's just intellectually, I know that I shouldn't be. It's there's books on the table. It's supposed to be there are books on the table. I feel just like a lot of you do that it's supposed to be our books because it's plural, whereas there is a book on the table. But very often when you hear colloquial English, people just say theirs, even with plural things. There's books over there. There's lots of reasons to think that. Uh-huh. To me, that is every bit as off-putting, and I don't mean in terms of how I feel about the people, but it feels messy in the same way as the Billy and me thing does to a lot of you. And here's why it shouldn't. Languages work like that. They are never perfect. Often what we're hoping will match really never did, or if it doesn't now, it doesn't in lots of other languages and nobody blinks an eye. So for example, let's move over to German, which is kind of like English. And so there's a house. Es gibt ein Haus. Okay, es gibt, that is, it gives. So a house gives is kind of like what it means. So es gibt ein Haus. Gibt is gives. Es gibt ein Haus. Okay, let's say that there are lots of houses. Let's say there are viele Häuser. Okay, you would think, well, it gives a house. A house gives over there. Well, lots of houses give over there. Lots of houses. There give lots of houses, you'd think. Well, to pluralize give in German, you say geben, geben. So you would think that if it's es gibt ein Haus, that it gives a house, well then presumably if it's, there are many houses, viele Häuser, then it's going to be es geben viele Häuser, es geben viele Häuser. No, you don't say that. That makes you sound like you have a disease. It's es gibt viele Häuser. Same thing, es gibt viele Häuser. So it gives many houses, even though the many houses would geben, they wouldn't gibt. That's just the way it is. And if you think our plurals in English are bad, you should think of Germans. So, for example, Haus, that's house. Häuser is houses. But then Maus, Maus. And then, for the plural, it's Mäuse. Well, why not Mäuser? Well, German don't care. Another example. I usually don't do Finnish on this show, and I'm not sure why, because for about 10 minutes, I spoke Finnish very, very, very badly. I locked myself out of a building and managed to get myself back in with a monolingual Finn. You know, I had like... 100 words had a kind of a sketch of the grammar. That was a long time ago, and one moves on. But Finnish is a neat language in many ways. It's also relatively easy to not pronounce horribly. I don't know why I don't use it more. But in any case, suppose you wanted to say there's a book on the table. The way it comes out in Finnish is on the table is a book. So book is kirja. Is is on. On the table is pedela. Now I have to come up with a Finnish voice. Um, Estonian and Finnish are very close, and Estonian always has that soft voice, so Finnish should have a softish voice. Okay, so book is kirja, and um, is is on, and on the table it's pedele. So, there's a book on the table. On the table is a book. Pedele on kirja. Okay, so what about there are books on the table? So on the table are books. Well, books isn't kirja, it's kirjoja. Now, that's the same, on the table. So to say on the table are books, you say on Notice that the on didn't change. It's and that's the... Why is it getting nasal? That's on the table. And then on is just is. And then is books. And so books is on the table in Helsinki. The third person plural for on would be ovat. You do not say 
paedella o varkiryoya, or at least you usually don't, it's on. And nobody in Finland is running around complaining about this, or at least I spent five weeks there, and no one brought this up with me. And so, really, what it is is that in English we have this word theirs. It's called an existential, and it did start with this verb to be, third person singular form, at the end of it. But now the isness of it is largely gone. It's just a chunk. You learn that it's there is later, especially because we have writing. But really, there's this word that could be spelled T H E R E Z, theirs, and it does not change according to singular or plural. So there's a little bit of finish. In all of us. Of course, there's a show tune that begins with there are. There are actually quite a few. One of my favorites is from Bye Bye Birdie. This is from the film of Bye Bye Birdie, which gets knocked a lot, but I actually don't tell anybody I said this, but I like it better than the stage show. And this is Got a Lot of Living to Do. This is the beginning of the song. And then pretty soon, Anne Margaret and Bobby Rydell are up there dancing, but this is just the first lyric. Very catchy little song. Nice arranging, too. There are men with childhood behind them Handsome men from Yale or Purdue Older men And I'm gonna find them I got a lot of A quick pitch here for something that is very important. And no, it's not Slate Plus. You know, the other day I was reviewing the story of Hittite, which is an Indo-European language that is very dead, spoken in what is now Turkey. And there's an interesting story as to how it was rediscovered. And when I want to know something like that, and I want something besides Wikipedia then where I have often gone is the Linguistics Research Center site, which is generated at the University of Texas at Austin. The Linguistics Research Center is a wonderful, wonderful resource, and you can learn all sorts of things. And this is not obscure. So actually, at this point, about 30,000 people are using this each month, and they're from 136 countries. That's basically, that might as well be every country in the world. I know it's not even close, but that's a whole lot of countries. And there is so much on this site. It's the sort of thing that a lot of you who write me want to know about and written accessibly in a way that often outdoes Wikipedia. Lots and lots of stuff about the ancient languages that you want to know about. You want to know about Old Persian? You can find out about it without getting confused on this site. Old Irish is something I don't think I've ever talked about on this show. It is just gobsmackingly fascinating. You can learn about it without getting a stroke on this site. Also, a lot of you want to know about Proto-Indo-European. Goodness, the sources on Proto-Indo-European can seem almost designed to ward off anybody who isn't clinically insane. But there's this online Indo-European lexicon, as they call it, that actually lays things out clearly in a way that I'm not aware exists anywhere else. And they're also about to expand all this to Semitic languages, for those of you who want to do the Hebrew and the Ugaritic, not to mention Arabic, etc., and the Mayan languages, which are fascinating for reasons I need to share on this show at some point. So much is on this, and wouldn't you know that the suits at UT Austin 
are withdrawing funding from this linguistics research center site. And it costs money to keep things like this going because it's put together by really concerned experts. What I want you to do if you care about this is, frankly, they need your money. And it doesn't have to be $500. Every little bit helps. Go to Facebook's UTLRC site. You can find this on Facebook. And if you have a little bit to spare, pitch in to keep this valuable educational resource going. However, still, you want to know why I cannot stand listening to a certain renowned chef because he keeps calling ramen ramian? You want to know why? Then you have to get, yeah, I, you knew I was going to go here. You have to get Slate Plus. Slate Plus allows you to get a little tag like, you know, on an old sitcom after the show where I discuss some bite-sized issue. It never has anything to do with the show. It's just extra information. But to hear that, you have to pay a nominal fee. And it wouldn't only be then for my show. It would be for all of the other Slate podcasts. And the idea is, quite simply and openly, to help fund all of these wonderful shows. I don't mean mine, I mean the others. But here's what you get. Not only do you get the extra bit, but you also get not having to listen to any ads, not read by me, not read by anybody else. You just get the show plus your extra little bit for a nominal fee. So I'm not going to say during this show what my problem with Ramian is. To know about that, you have to listen to the little bit after this, which is Slate Plus. Okay, another one that I don't like. And I've mentioned this on this show, I think, or maybe it was somewhere else, but I feel bad about this one because it's very, very common. It is practically universal in some quarters, and really nobody should have any problem with it. Language changes, slang changes, it just is. But for me, it's, can I get, can I get a Coke? I feel it as having come in about 20 years ago, I could be wrong. People may have been saying this in 1940, but to me, it's something that happened sometime in the late 90s, maybe even after, but can I get a Coke? And I always think to myself, isn't that a little pushy? Like, get it. It's like you're going to be grabbing it or something. I just always think to myself quietly, no, you may not get it. And I'm not sure what I wish people would say. You know, may I, I don't want it to be formal, but this idea, can I get it, always sounds to me a little bit, I hate to say it, but you know, it sounds a little vulgar. And the people who use it are not vulgar. Everybody says this these days. And I really understand that I've got to get over it because it's not, can I grab a Coke? That's not the meaning that can I get a Coke springs from. Can I get a Coke is, could it be that I receive? And this business of couching it as me receiving takes the person giving it to you out of the equation. Can I get, and you're imagining yourself getting it, but you're not specifying who is doing the giving it to you such that you have this getness. What that is, is polite. It's actually a very civil way of saying, give me something and then I'll give you some money. Can I get, could it be that I receive? In other words, it's this softening that I've talked about. So it's just like, I'm going to head out instead of I shall leave now. Or how often people are using sort of these days. You know, like gets more press, but sort of is really almost replacing it in some quarters. That hedging of what you're saying. All of it is a kind of politeness. Impressionistically, I would say, and I haven't done a real study of this at this point because it's very hard to hear much casual speech before a certain time, but American English is ever more 
acknowledging of other people's space and point of view for reasons that it would be interesting to investigate, and I'm actually going to start doing it. It's funny, just, you know, spitballing it, the whole thing of can I get is kind of like politeness marking in languages like Japanese, where how you use pronouns and how you use verbs changes all over the place, depending on who you're talking to, depending on who you are, depending on whether it's a man, whether it's a woman. That kind of thing in Japanese is really complex. Japanese and Korean have a lot of that. When children in America grow up speaking Japanese and Korean, but don't learn that part, it embarrasses their parents. And yet Japanese and Korean grammar overall, what we think of as grammar, is only moderately complicated. English is about as moderately complicated grammatically as Japanese and Korean. But the truth is, we are becoming very polite. It's almost as if when a language is only so complicated in some areas, it kind of starts reaching out, becoming more complicated in other ones. And as I've said, politeness is a kind of grammar. So Japanese, Korean, and English, modestly complicated, but the politeness ends up getting ever more elaborated. And it's interesting. Slavs. Slavs often think that the way English handles politeness, could you open the door, etc., is kind of weak sounding, that it's kind of prissy, that it's overdone, that it's fake. And this is what I mean by spitballing. Sometimes I wonder if the relative bluntness of a language like Russian or Polish is because the grammar otherwise is so absurdly complex and there's only so much that a brain is willing to handle. Javanese, as opposed to Japanese, is easier grammatically than English, Japanese, or Korean. You almost wonder, really, is this is this it? Javanese is like that. And yet, it has so many different levels of vocabulary based on politeness. Five, if you want to make it seem showy. Definitely three, that even native speakers find this challenging. They'll tell you. The last Javanese person I knew actually said, oh yeah, I speak Javanese, but not that high kind. I don't know those high words. That's how hard it is. So, can I get a Coke? It's so normal, people will say it at a fancy restaurant these days. I hear it as a little bit vulgar for very arbitrary reasons, but it isn't. It's actually very refined. You give a little, you get a little. It's 1951, you might sing about it. You're Dolores Gray, this is Two on the Aisle. This show is with Bert Lahr and her. So, if you want to listen to the cowardly lion not doing liony things and not all that long after the Wizard of Oz, listen to the otherwise rather evanescent cast album of Two on the Isle. This was Dolores Gray's song. This was the catchiest number in the show. I'm on the beam. I've got a flash on how to live in this civilization to make a dream come out of hash. Give a little, get a little love A morning smile, an evening kiss Can be the pills for the ills of the nation Don't cramp your style, remember this Give a little, get a little love No love, no hope Then life's a dungeon, so throw the sponge in With love, there's hope Take a share and share the fun And keep the cold from this old constellation It's everywhere for everyone Make a little, take a little, take a little Live a little, give a little, get a little love Give a little, get a little
All right, here is the last one. And with this one, I'm ashamed. I really am ashamed. I wish I didn't feel this way. And I'm going to tell you why I shouldn't feel this way. But I do. Yes, linguists have pet peeves. And because a lot of them for us are in writing, I'm going to make an exception. Yes, language is casual expression and writing is something else. But writing still is a very prominent and very immediate to us way of using language. And there are little things. And you know, one of my pet peeves in writing, and I, I, I hate to say this because frankly, there are issues of education, there are issues of class, but one where I must admit that I jump a little bit is the it's business. So somebody writes, everything has its place and they have an apostrophe in the it's. And I must admit, I think to myself, I don't, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Don't they know that you don't use the apostrophe with that it's? Can't they differentiate the two? And so it's a great day when, that's an apostrophe because it's short for it is, but everything has its place. It's not everything has it is place. And so of course you don't use the apostrophe. Okay. But really it's not fair. It's just not fair. Why don't you use the apostrophe with even the everything has its place one? I mean, think about it. So my and his, those possessives, well, there is no other word in them. It's not, say, me's. So you don't have to write M-E apostrophe. His, it's he's, but now it's his. And so it's not H-E apostrophe S. And remember that in earlier English, there was no such thing as an apostrophe. It creeps in. But with it's, well, there is a word, it. And so if you're talking about Andrew's book, if you're talking about the nation's catastrophe, then why not it's, it apostrophe, s, place? Why not? Right now I am teaching my youngest how to read, and it is so sad when you run up against things like was, of, and said. In other words, the shittily spelled words. I look into Vanessa's big brown eyes and I have to say, that one is just bad. And I can tell that she's thinking, why? And she just kind of goes along with it. And I think, look at how she's learning that life is hard. First, from just <laughs> learning how to read during this virus crisis. You just have to deal with it. Well, what about an apostrophe like this that really doesn't make sense? How much of this sort of thing do we need in our lives? Because, think about this. When is it ever not clear when you leave out the apostrophe? Everything has its place. That's fine. Suppose you added the apostrophe. What wouldn't be clear? It's a mistake in terms of the conventions that we have. But to tell you the truth, it's quite clear what it means. If somebody writes, everything has its place. Well, what would that mean if you meant the it is? What would it mean to say, it is, is the only way to do things. You can't even wrap your head around it. You know what it means. And if somebody writes something like, it's a great day today, and they don't use the apostrophe, are you really thinking that that it's meant the possessive one, which would make no blessed sense at all? Really, the apostrophe is useless. Leaving it out is like just not doing the right dance step, just because that's not how people do it. Or it's something like, I think about 15 years ago, I learned that you're not supposed to wear tube socks. You know, if you've got short pants, you're not supposed to have these white tube socks and then your sneakers. Instead, you're supposed to wear ankle socks. Now, I didn't know that in the 70s and the 80s and not the 90s, but apparently I was kind of tacky 
I was putting on these socks because they make them and they seem to be designed to go all the way up to about halfway to the knee. But no, you're not supposed to do that. Now, why? That makes no blessed sense. Why are you all of a sudden grandpa if you have your tube socks and you're wearing them? It's just arbitrary fashion, but now I wouldn't be caught dead without the ankle socks. It's is kind of like that. Now, I have to be careful. I wrote a piece once somewhere, I forget where, where I argued against the Oxford comma. And somehow a lot of people got the feeling I was saying that there should be no such thing as a comma at all. Italy was particularly angry. What's their word for comma? Virgola or something. There were these articles in like Corriere della Sera, professor says there shouldn't be commas. He's a motherfucker or something like that. <laughs> well, I did not mean that about commas, but apostrophes, frankly, we don't really need them. So for example, German, John's book. Well, let's make it Johann. Yup. Um, let's make it John's. John's Buch, because German has a deep voice. John's Buch. You do not have to put some little piece of pasta in there to indicate that it's possessive. It's just John's with an S at the end, as if we were talking about Glennis Johns, who was in The Happiest Millionaire. John's Book. Simple as that. So, everything has its place. I don't like seeing it, but I really need to get over it, because the apostrophe is frankly just like ankle socks. You know that got a lot of living? That number goes on to one of the greatest dance numbers ever put on film. Yeah, Fred and Ginger, Gene Kelly, but really Bye Bye Birdie has a really great dance scene here with really great music. So you don't have to see them doing their little head tipping thing, but just the boogie woogie. Imagine being a saxophone player doing that pattern on the bottom. This is conducted by Johnny Green. Al Woodbury does the arrangements. People deserve credit for this. Let's go out on just the instrumental of Got a Lot of Living to Do from the Birdie film. <laughs> You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. Mike Volo is, comma, as always, comma, the editor, comma, and I'm, well, you have to have an apostrophe in there because otherwise you might think that I'm is that other word in, have to have that apostrophe, John McWhorter.